Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello listeners and welcome to the first episode of Inside Bristol Live, a new podcast that takes you inside your local newsroom and shows you life behind the headlines. We've got a great show for you today. Uh, I'm your host, Alex Ballinger. First of all, we're going to be talking to the editor of Bristol Live, Mike Norton, as this podcast comes out just after we have relaunched the website under the name Bristol Live, changing from the name Bristol Post. So we are going to be talking with Mike Norton about why we've made that change, how significant it is, and what it means for our readers going forward. And then after that, we're going to be talking to our education reporter, Michael Yong, uh, who has been exploring a council scandal that led to a family living in a single hotel room for more than three years. He'll take you behind the headlines on that one, talk you through the ins and outs and what it really means for this family as well. And after that, we'll be speaking to one of our newer reporters, Bronwyn Weatherby, who has broken a, a very large-scale investigation about pay-to-work tipping scandals in Bristol, which has also been affecting uh, restaurant chains around the country. So really hope you enjoy the show. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also follow us on Twitter at IBL Podcast, or you can follow me personally at AMB Hack. We'll be coming out each Friday, so please download us and hope you enjoy the show. So we are here with the Bristol Post slash Bristol Live editor, Mike Norton. Hello, Mike. Hi, Alex. How are you? Yeah, well, how are you? Very well, thank you. Good, good. So I just wanted to ask you a few questions about the rebrand, what it means for the Post and Bristol Live and what it means for Bristol mm -hmm. as well. So first of all, you and I are both from Bristol and have grown up with the Post. How big is the decision to change the name? I think when you've got an institution like a newspaper, like the Bristol Post, then you have to think very carefully about changing its name. Uh, so it is a big decision, but it's not one that hasn't been thought about and discussed a lot before we've done it. And not just as you know internally, but we've discussed it externally with Bristolians as well. And why have we decided to change the name? I think that's the big question readers will be asking. I think one of the problems we have is that in the city we are still perceived as a print product with a digital, with a digital arm. And we want to make, make it obvious that, in fact, that digital element of our content is separate, it's different, and it's very, very successful in its own right. So it's a strength and a weakness to have that brand, I mean, digitally. So nothing's going to change about the paper. The paper will carry on being the Bristol Post, and a lot of the content for it will come from the website. But in terms of the web, the legacy of print can be a hindrance. So that's why. And so where does the name come from? It's not a name you traditionally associate with newspapers and news, uh, Bristol Life, but what, where does it come from? What does it mean? Yeah, because that's part of the problem. We're not just news. We're information. We're, we're a place where people discuss the news. We're a place where people express opinions about the news. And we're, we're a place where people might want to go to find out how good a restaurant is, 
how good a shop is, you know, where they could spend their money. So we are not just about news. The idea really is to come up with a name which goes beyond the sense of a news provider. I mean, don't get me wrong, news does drive a lot of our audience, but increasingly it's other content that's doing so as well. So what is going to be different about Bristol Live for our readers? Well, it's a different name and it's a new colour, but those are just cosmetic, obviously. In the past, the post has been associated with a certain approach uh, to Bristol, perhaps sometimes accused of negativity towards the city. And that isn't how I feel about my city. It's your city as well. That isn't how we feel about it. So I think we want to create something that has a more modern, a more trusted, a more measured approach, you know, an entertainment brand beyond being a news brand that really champions the city and our audiences and our customers that people want to be part of every day. And so what will we be bringing to the city as a brand? So I, th- I think they'll notice a bit of a change in the way we approach content. I'm trying to appeal to a wider uh, uh, community in the city. There are communities that we don't represent brilliantly at the moment, and I've been speaking about this in other forums. So I think, I think we need to be more representative uh, of the city and the, the cultural elements of the city. So I think they'll see a more rounded and hopefully a more measured approach to the, to the news about the city. I'm sure we've got a lot of loyal readers who are worried that their paper could disappear. What does Bristol Live mean for the for the Bristol Live doesn't mean anything for the Bristol Post. The Bristol Post has a, a different staff. It has a different approach to the way it presents the news. You could argue it's a more traditional approach. That's what some readers want, and it won't change at all. It will still be the Bristol Post. As the editor, for you personally, what does this mean for you, this rebrand, and what would you like to see come out of it as well? I would like to see, obviously, we want more people to read the post online. Um, we want more people to come in to Bristol Live. At the moment, we reach about, you know, in a good week, we'll reach about 40% of the city, which is an amazing reach, and, and nobody else comes closer, to be honest. But I would like to see more. That, you know, what, Where are the other 60%? Why aren't they turning, us, turning to us for their information? Is it because they associate us with a print product? Are they younger and they don't necessarily understand what we can offer digitally? There is an element of, of trying to appeal to those people. For me personally, it's a big change. I mean, I my first job was delivering the paper uh, in Brisington when I was 12, you know, whatever it was. Couldn't, couldn't do it now because you're not allowed to deliver the paper at 12, but but I did then. Then it was the Evening Post. And, you know, we're sat in an office at the moment and and Looking down from the wall is a, is a portrait of a guy called A.J. Spurl, who was the first editor of the Evening Post, you know, in 1932. So I realise that I'm part of that tradition. I think there have only been 11 editors of the paper since him, or including him. And so you, you make a change like this, you do it carefully, you, you don't do it without consideration. About five years ago or six years ago, we decided to take the word evening off of the, the masthead like most of our sister papers across the, the country, because we weren't an evening paper anymore. Uh, people didn't want an evening newspaper anymore. We essentially went with the customers. Our morning edition was becoming our, by far our biggest seller. And that was a big change. So this is another big change that I'm part of. And I feel quite proud to be associated with a change that is going to leave a legacy of, of a different name for the paper. I suppose the other thing I want to add is that we... We haven't done this without asking Bristolians either. So we've asked them about the brand. We've asked them about how how they see the post, what sense they get of us 
from being called the Bristol Post .co.uk. And the, the simple fact is that all the research shows us, and I know this sounds bizarre, but it's true, we will be seen as more informative, more useful, more current, more interesting, more welcoming, more modern, more trustworthy, more reliable, more passionate, more inspiring, all these things, significantly more, actually, with a different name. In fact, with the Bristol Live name. So I feel that we're not making this decision in a vacuum. We've consulted people in the city about it. They've given us their opinion, and we're reacting to that. Thank you so much for your time, Mike. Really appreciate it. Thanks. So that was Bristol Live editor Mike Norton talking us through the rebrand that has happened this week. Now we're going to be talking to our education reporter, Michael Yong, who's been exploring this council scandal that has left a family living in a single hotel room for more than three years. Let's hear what Michael had to say. So first things first, can you just sort of talk us through what this story is that you've been looking into? Um, so essentially, it is a Bristol family who's been made homeless um, and it was, was made homeless in April 2014. They're qualified teachers. They lost their job and their house got destroyed during the floods in Somerset. And they moved back to Bristol, where they're from, and had to stay in a Premier Inn and started making applications to the council for help, either through housing or homelessness applications. It then follows for the next four years just trying to get onto the housing register. And unfortunately, they don't get on it for... A wide range of reasons, some of it lawful, some of it not uh, from the council. So this is just a report from the ombudsman into a situation and finding out that actually the council um, has failed this family. And so the ombudsman is a an official who is tasked with investigating complaints from the public into some sort of organisation, isn't it? In this case, it's the local government and social services. Spawn. Um, so they are the watchdogs of local governments, of councils and... Uh, anyone can make a complaint to the ombudsman. Whether they take it up is purely down to the, the regulator. So, yeah. And so what were the failings of the council? Um, we've heard that the council didn't do enough for these families and they've been mm -hmm. criticised for that. What did the council fail with? Many things, really. Um, they opened a, they reopened a housing application from uh, a few years back for the family without telling the family. And so every time the dad tried to make a homelessness application or a housing application, he gets stopped at the pre-register stage, which has a uh, filter. Many times he tries to find private lets as well, and the landlord say, yeah, come and live with us. Unfortunately for him, because he's run out of money, he spent about 90 grand living in hotels. So it's not being paid for the taxpayer, but by him. Every time he, he applies for help, the council says no. Or sometimes if the council say yes, they take too long with it, and therefore... He loses that private standing deposit, if you like. Several things as well, like children's services came to see the family multiple times because the children are disabled. Two of them are disabled. He's got three children. And they failed to sort of work with housing department to make sure they've got a house. So that, those are just a few of the things, really. There's a long list of them. But, um, and the council has accepted responsibility for this, haven't they? They've they apologised, but they've said that it didn't meet the usually high standards was i believe their response wasn't it what does this mean for people in bristol who are waiting for housing does this mean anything for them uh, yes so we have as we know about a thousand families or more who are classed as homeless and, and in that case there will be a lot more families out there who can now start applying for either homelessness applications or start putting in housing applications 
because the pre-filter the ombudsman has ruled as unlawful is now gone. So that pre-filter essentially stopped people from even applying for housing. So that's a good thing. So we'll probably see a few more families now try to join the register. The only problem is whether we have enough homes for them. That's the biggest question, really. And for the people that are on the waiting list, I suppose there tends to be a perception of the kind of person that waits for housing, isn't there, that is on the housing list and is waiting to be put into accommodation by the council. But this family, from what I've seen, don't seem to fit that kind of stereotypical view of what you would imagine. I mean, they're working families. What would you say about the family themselves? When we first did the story, we had a lot of comments on the story about why should we pay for them? And the funny thing is, is you don't pay extra council tax for them specifically. You know, your council tax is used for a variety of reasons, you know, for the highways, for bin collections, for the NHS. It goes very far and wide. And, and one of it is helping homeless families. So in terms of, of this family here, you know, they, they are qualified teachers and, and they, were, they were evicted from their property because they lost their jobs as teachers. They homeschooled their children because they are teachers. And you will not think of them as, you know, why are they having more children? And sometimes, you know, they're put in stress, stressful situations. We say on the streets quite a lot that you're two or three paychecks away from being homeless yourselves. So it's easy to think that this is something very far removed from the listeners, but actually it could happen to anyone if you lose your job. What was the impact on the family? Spending three years in a single hotel room is not a nice life for anyone you'd imagine. What was no. sort of the impact on their mental health and their lifestyles? Um, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to speak to the family yet. But what happens is you can imagine having a family of five living in a little tiny hotel room with a single bed or sometimes two single beds if you could afford it. And two of the children are disabled. They're visually impaired, one of them blind. Uh, one of them is a baby. So anyone who lives at home would probably know that a baby or has, has a baby at home and a baby can be quite noisy. Therefore, everyone in the same room means you don't just wake the parents, you wake everyone else. And the children are quite young. So uh, there, there is a real stress in such situations on children's mental health. And then thinking about if the children were to go back to school in the future, keeping in mind they moved around quite a lot and therefore could not have a proper school. If they were to go back to school in the future, how this impacts them going back to school, it's difficult to tell. But obviously, three years in that sort of environment is very, very stressful for anyone. And as well as us reporting this, this story has gone absolutely everywhere. It's been all over the national news as well. What is it about this story, do you think, that really resonates with people, not just in Bristol, but around the country? Most of the major cities in Britain are in a group of housing crisis. Bristol, obviously, is quite clear. Bristol has a housing crisis, extreme housing crisis, if you like, you know, house prices are very high. We haven't got enough social housing for everyone on the list, uh, very far from it, actually. So I I think that one of the most basic needs of every human being is shelter. And sometimes we take it for granted that we've got shelter and we've got a bed to sleep on and a a roof over our heads. At some point, they say one in 13 young people experience homelessness at some point. And um, that's far higher than you would imagine it to be. You know, if you consider the people you went to school with, you know, one basically two people in your class in school yeah, could end yeah, up on indeed, the streets yeah. effectively, yeah. Uh, indeed. So it's, it's, I think, something that people can appreciate. Uh, it, you know, it's great to see we have a compassion to its people who don't have what we have. And I think, you know, the local paper plays a, a big part in that and making sure, you know, we, we keep up and un- understand situations more than just reporting them. So where did this story come from as well? Where did it originate? How did you come onto it? Like most news stories, we either hear about it or, in this case, it's an official report. 
So local government ombudsman would have told us about this yesterday. Unfortunately, it only got to us quite late. Um, it's a case of working it. You had a, working a late night, I understand, didn't you? Very late. Uh, so it's a case of working through it through the night, looking at the report, but also making sure the report, which is 20 pages or 22 pages, is condensed in such a way that the readers would you know, not have to read 30,000 words, but maybe 1,000 words. It's still very long, but I think it's definitely worth it. You get an idea, a very comprehensive idea about what this family has been through. Uh, without actually having to go through 22 pages. Uh, not many people have the time to do that. So that's how the story came about. Obviously, there are many follow-ups to this. You can start thinking about housing crisis in Bristol. As a, uh, the council are going to start looking at this situation. Um, you know, They've started making some changes. And to be fair to the council, they haven't turned around and said, I'm not going to do this. You know, they're, they're, they're quite keen to make the changes. And so fair play to them. That's important, I think. So what is the next step then for the council and for the family and for anyone else that's on this waiting list as well, trying to get housing in a similar situation? For the council, they've made quite a few changes. You know, according to them, they have removed this pre-application filter, which allows more families to come forward and allows more families now to do it online and get on the homelessness register, which means then the council has a duty to house or the housing register, which means the council then has to find them a house. So this is a first big step. Also, I think the council now realises if they make a family intentionally homeless or they find an intentionally, a family intentionally homeless, it means they would have to keep your belongings and they have to take care of it and not charge you for it. So one thing this family had to do at the end of it was they would charge nearly £5,000 for the return of their property when the council should have, by their statutory duty, taken it on for free. Of course, this puts a huge burden you know, on councils. Uh, councils are facing huge funding cuts, backdrop of austerity. They have to find millions upon millions of pounds every year. But this is an important part of their duty. Again, a word used very often. Um, so the, the councils are making changes there. Hopefully what this means as well is the council starts engaging a little bit more. Um, we, we still don't know the full changes because it, it is still yet to come to, to cabinet um, it's, or council. It's only just come out on Thursday, very early in the morning, uh, we're talking one minute past midnight, so they still need time to sort of take it in and obviously make the changes. For families, what is important is now they try to register again because maybe they thought that they will not get on the register. Maybe they thought their application will not come through. Maybe they try multiple times. might be worth trying again now, using this as an example for future applications. Thank you so much for your time, Michael. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much to Michael for that. That was really interesting. And now, finally on the show, but of course not least, we're going to be speaking to one of our reporters who has been carrying out an investigation into a pay-to-work tipping scandal at a Bristol restaurant chain. It's quite shocking, so uh, let's hear from her now. My name is Bronwyn Weatherby. I'm a news reporter at Bristol Live. So, Bron, you are relatively fresh to journalism. You've mm. joined us um, at, the, at Bristol Live straight out of university. And... In the last sort of year of your career, you've done some pretty massive stories and worked on some pretty big issues. What we're here to talk about today is a very bizarre case of employers charging their staff to work effectively. Is that is that the gist of it? Yeah, that that's the gist of it. So yeah. what if you just briefly tell us what is the story? So um in sort of basic terms, the story is about waiters and waitresses at 
Aqua Italia in Bristol. They're actually a chain restaurant. They have seven restaurants across the Southwest having to pay 3% of all the tables they serve back to the employer at the end of their shift. Now, what that means, because it does come across quite confusing initially, is if you had 10 tables, so individual waiters and waitresses look after their own tables in that restaurant, and they spent at £500, say, altogether, then at the end of your shift, you would have to pay 3% of £500 back to the company. Now, if you've earned enough tips during your shift, which most of the time those those waiters do, it comes out of your tips, which is still very unfair. But if you don't, if it's been a bad night or for whatever reason you haven't earned that amount in tips, then it has to come out of your own pocket. So either way, you have to pay that money back to the company. It's a way of the restaurant getting a portion of your tips, basically. Even in some cases, if there are no tips by the yes. end of it. So yeah. even if the table doesn't decide not to tip at all, you still have to pay the employees. If you're, As a waiter, you have to pay, pay Aqua some money still out of your own pocket. Yes, exactly. So that has yeah. got to be quite shocking to to a lot of people that don't realise that's how some, some restaurants can work, I suppose. What was the reaction when, when you put the story out there? I, I knew that the reaction would be strong based off of my own gut instinct and my own reaction when the person came to me with a story. 50% of people, I would say, were outraged that waiters and waitresses were being taken advantage of in this way. But there was also 50% of people who were outraged that their tips that they pay specific people for giving them good service were being used in a way that they hadn't permitted. You know, a tip is, in this country at least, something you give out of, you know, your own kindness, your own goodness, your own appreciation of good service, and you expect it to go to that person or at least be distributed in a fair way between the waiters and waitresses. I think we accept that, but not for it to go back to the restaurant who you are already paying a substantial amount in in this case, it's a nice restaurant, for your meal. Is that something that you noticed then after the stories went out, people started reading it, people started reacting to it? Did you notice that some customers didn't even realise that their tips might not be all completely going to the staff? Is that something that people were surprised by, do you think? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I don't think anyone knew that that was going on there. Obviously, in, in 2015, for those who aren't familiar with the story, the same thing came out about Las Guanas and Turtle Bay. Las Guanas has since changed their policy on that, and I believe Turtle Bay have continued it. But that was a big shock at the time. I think The Guardian came out with the story initially in The Independent, but no one thought it was really going on anywhere else. From my experience since the story and whilst doing the story, it's actually far more common than we'd like to imagine. So this has been quite a big investigation for you. You've yeah. written a lot of pieces on this. I was just scrolling back through some of the articles you've done. It covers so many different aspects and you've written about pretty much all of them. How did the story start? Where did you come into come into contact with this story? How did it reach you? Okay, well, like a, a fair few of our stories, people ring in, either with a fully formed story or a tip off about something or would you mind investigating this? In this case, someone who worked at Aqua Italia, who we have kept anonymous throughout, because obviously their position um, within the company at the time, rang up 
and said, you know, this is going on. They laid out exactly what was happening in the restaurant. And as you can imagine, having never heard of such a thing in my life, I got them to repeat it about 10 times before I actually fully got what was going on there. And when I when it clicked, I just couldn't believe it. And I thought instantly that this was something that I wanted to investigate. My gut instinct was that it was going to be a big story. But, you know, looking into it, you know, it's not always as simple as that as a journalist. You've got to make sure that you have proof about everything that you say. And that that's often the hardest bit because... It's not that you don't believe the person who's rung you. Nine times out of ten, they've rung you because they are truthful and they've got a legitimate story. But you, as a journalist, have to make sure, if if for anything, to protect the company legally and to protect yourself ethically. So it was about collecting that evidence, which came in in the form of other testimonials from people who worked there or had worked there previously or and recently, and then forms and contracts that that specifically said that they would have to pay a three so this wasn't something that the company had sort of on a whim decided to start doing and no one had protested this is something that's written into the staff contract as well so when people would start this would be something they would automatically be signing up for what i found was it wasn't written into the contract it was a separate sheet of paper that staff were made to sign uh usually when they just gone in for the interview and They'd been, you know, hired. And didn't quite have time to, to read it through properly and understand no. what it meant. Then, yeah. Actually. And I was told by everyone I spoke to, actually, that when they were got, they, they were told to sign it, it was kind of a, oh, sign this and read it later. But they weren't given a copy. And then it was only when they were on the floor doing their job at the end of their first shift or second shift, they were told fully about it. And by that point, you've got the job. You're probably in need of a job. I mean, a lot of waiters and waitresses are either students or you know you need your job once you've got a job you you've can take a breath another of, job to yeah come to this one yeah so exactly to go back to them yeah it's not easy to change jobs and it's it's never a fun thing to job hunt or go for interviews so a lot of people just stayed and stuck it out and I think but I think a lot of people left after they became frustrated with the fact that they were having to do this so one of the key parts as well of a story like this is you need to go to the company involved, you need to go to Aqua and you yeah. need to ask them for basically give them a right of reply, which is to ask them what they want to say about this story they were writing about them. Uh, what was Aqua's defense when you went to them? Um, they didn't reply. They didn't give a defense. My initial contact with anyone involved in the managerial side of Aqua was I emailed the information email that was available on their website to ask if someone could contact me, basically. I didn't I didn't put the details of the story because I didn't know who it would be going through to. Within, I'd say, 15, 20 minutes, Ben, who is the is one of the owners and runs the whole operation, he emailed me back on his personal email and said, Of course, what 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 is it about? I'd be happy to help. I emailed that email back stating what the, the story was and asking for a comment or if I could have a chat with them about it, you know, anything really. And I, from that moment on, I never got a reply. So they've still, to this day, not responded to no. the stories we've written? As, as you would. Uh, I've asked for a comment every single time I've uh, published a story or written a story or come across any any sort of new information just to give them that opportunity, you know, again, to reply, but they haven't, no. 
So after this all broke as well and it went everywhere, didn't it? It went national yeah. and it must have been a bit of a storm for you to have one of your, your stories sort of hit every, every headline that you could read. You were then asked to come to Westminster to help inform the debate and actually work on some policy around this exact issue, aren't you? Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about? Yeah, it's funny how word of, word of mouth really spreads, to be honest. I mean, obviously, we're privileged in the fact that we've got a platform in order to get messages out there and, and stories out there. So I wrote the story and I wrote several stories. And, and one of them in particular caught the eye of MP Darren Jones. And he tweeted me, actually, because I tweeted out one of the stories and he tweeted me saying, this can't be legal. <laughs> and I said, well, yes, it is. And also I've written a story about if it is or isn't legal, you know, it's it is legal, basically. But he then got involved and, and said he really wanted to push for something to change ab- about this. He found that there was lots of legal loopholes that allowed restaurants to kind of make up their own rules to do a tipping, which then allows for a kind of abuse of the system, which is clearly what this is. So... Yeah, I got an email from Darren. I spoke to him several times on the phone and got an email from him then saying that they were going to be taking it to Westminster, which I was delighted about. You know, more personally, you know, it's it's the reason I got into journalism in particular is to make a difference and to be that voice for the public. So it was great. I never expected to be invited (laughs) along, though, but they wanted representatives of the press, particularly Um, myself because I'd broken the story to sit on a panel basically and and discuss along with union reps and people who have worked in hospitality other MPs lots of people really just what was the what was the result of that panel what did you conclude what did it what came out of it so firstly I went to the debate so MPs including Darren had a debate in Westminster Hall with the cabinet minister and thrashed things out. It was really interesting, actually, because there was lots of MPs from all different areas of the UK, Scotland, Wales, England, you know, lots and lots of people who had their constituents coming to them with similar stories. So they all sort of thrashed it out in Westminster Hall. And then we went to a, a separate room, had a panel discussion. That was more about the practical ways in which we can go about actually making a change in the law. So rather than just debating it, actually making a change. And I I believe the plans are, at least in Darren's eyes, to try and make small amendments on already registered bills as a starting point to bringing about larger change. What he mainly wanted from us is evidence that this is not an isolated case which, you know, some people might believe it is, but it isn't. And so he could gather that evidence of it not being isolated to take further and show that this is something that really needs to have legislation in place to stop it happening. Because going back to not getting an answer from ACWA, it seems like legislation and and law is the only way of changing this, getting restaurants and restaurant owners to stand up and take note, because even a national story... The Independent and The Guardian, you know, back in 2015, revealed it about Las Guanas and Turtle Bay. Turtle Bay are still doing it. And it's the same for Aqua. I, I, you know, I know that they're still, they still have this policy and it hasn't made them change it. So if that's not going to change it, then the change has to come from the top down. And there has to be clear lines of what restaurants can and can't do 
uh, in regards to tipping and wages. So you've also done some work into other restaurants around Bristol that have had similar situations. What uh, what are the things that you find from other chains and other restaurants? Just a sort of a lax attitude towards tipping. So where there isn't necessarily policy in place, there's changing various ideas about tipping. So one week it'll be we're sharing it between all the floor staff and then it'll change to we're sharing it towards to everyone, you know, even the kitchen. I think... More worryingly, it is the fact that restaurant owners have the power to tell staff that they're not going to receive their tips. This is something that is cropping up more and more, and I'm looking to do follow-up stories on, so uh, keep an eye out. But there are several restaurants in Bristol alone that choose when their um, staff can actually receive the tips that they've earned themselves. What comes into this as well is the fact that a lot of people in hospitality are either young or they are, you know, from other countries. They don't feel like they can say anything or stand up because a lot of the time they are reliant on keeping that job and that wage from week to week and from month to month. And their employers know this. That's not to say like all um, restaurant owners are, are bad people. Some of the people who've notified me about these issues are themselves restaurant owners and caterers. They know that it's a problem themselves within their own industry and they don't agree with it. But then you get a lot of restaurant owners, particularly those of chains or those who feel like they've got a lot of power over their staff, fully take advantage of that fact. One of the most shocking details from the Aqua story, particularly the the situation there, was um, one of the young waitresses having to go to the cash point mm. to to get out money to then give back to her employer. What was the situation there? What happened there? So that was one of the seven restaurants. Obviously, it's a small chain. And at the end of her shift, they asked her for the 3%. And she she hadn't made that much in tips for one reason or another. She didn't have any cash on her because if, if she's like myself, I don't really carry cash and because they have to give that 3% over, she was sort of frog-marched to the nearest cash point uh, to get money out of her own bank account to pay that 3% levy. So what you're essentially doing there is paying someone to work, probably minimum wage, and then if they don't earn enough tips, you know, you're, you're subtracting it from the amount that you're paying them, which is is surely just not right. That's just a really bizarre situation, isn't it? Uh, Very bizarre, yeah. And sad, you know. Uh, I worked when I, you know, growing up and, and whilst I was in university in the hospital, hospitality industry. You know, it's a hard job and with long hours and, uh, you know, tips can sometimes just be the sort of, you know, cherry on top of a, what is usually a pretty stressful and and hard working day, you know, and that's the sort of one glimmer of light, you know, oh, I I made this amount in tips today. Oh, that's great. You know, maybe I can, whatever you want to spend it on, but maybe I can have a pint after work, you know, without worrying about spending my wages or, you know, whatever it is you want to do with that money. But it's often the only perk of working um, in some of these hospitality jobs and to take that away from someone not only take it away, but then cut into their wages. You know, I, I just think it's despicable. 
Thank you very much for your time, Bron. Uh, if anyone wants to get in contact, what is your Twitter handle in case they want to? My to Twitter handle is at Bron Weatherby. So that's B R O N W E A T H E R B Y. And that brings this week's show to an end. Really hope you enjoyed it. Please do get in touch if you enjoyed the show. Let us know what your thoughts are. You can reach us on Twitter at IBL Podcast. You can also speak to me personally at AMB Hack on Twitter. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate us on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts from. We're going to be coming out each Friday with a show just like this. So please stay tuned. Thanks. Until next time. <laughs>